Hello Life Changes Church, we are so excited that you clicked on this video. We are in a series called What's It Like? As we look at the parables that Jesus told as he unpacked the kingdom of God for us. So why don't you get ready, sit back, grab a notebook, grab a pen as we get encouraged by this word. I want to tell you a story that happened about 15 years ago now, just over 15 years ago. There was this moment where my friend and I, Rich, Richard Gordon, we were two skinny ragamuffins living in Durban at a church called Church of the Good Shepherd, uh, COGS, colloquially known as. And, uh, and we were there at this church, and we were students, and we had a bit of a, there was a bit of a holiday time, and we got a phone call saying, hey, listen, there's this other church called Glenridge that is taking a, a combi, a, a VW combi from Durban all the way up to Pretoria for the weekend, and this was the year 2007, and it was for a thing called the Passion Conference. Louis Giglio, a preacher from America, was coming out. He was bringing worship leaders, Chris Tomlin and Matt Redman, and, and they said, somebody's paid for you guys. Do you want to come for a free weekend away? Again, I said, we were students, so we were like, free, we're in. We're in. And uh, we, I remember we jumped in this combi with guys packed to the hilt with Glenridge people. And uh, what we thought was just going to be a weekend trip, uh, something to occupy our time, something to keep us entertained a little bit. But actually, I realized in, in retrospect that God was on the move. God was doing something more profound than I first imagined. And actually, as the story started to unfold, I realized that actually the plot was thickening. It wasn't just a phone call inviting me into a combi. Something deeper was going on. Firstly, I want to tell you, in that combi was this amazing lady called Libby Quinlan. And Richard, unbeknownst to him, would end up years later marrying Libby Quinlan. So he stepped into the combi, their eyes met, the world was changed, Libby became Libby Gordon. And now, years later, they've got two children, they're actually ministering in America at a really influential church. And they have pastors on that story. And I always go, wow, look at this amazing narrative that started in a combi. The plot thickens, people. The plot thickened. But wait, let me tell you, the plot thickened even more because in that combi was a guy called Clint Erlank and a girl called Michelle Stewart, and they would end up getting married. They would end up becoming pastors in an amazing church. But what's even more appropriate to us is that Michelle Stewart, now Michelle Erlank, was a jeweler, and she would be employed by one young Gabe Phillips many years later to make the engagement ring that would be going on Fiona's finger. Now, what is amazing about that story as well is that the man who helped me pay for that wedding ring was a man named Rory Dyer. And Rory Dyer was the, one, was the man who actually paid for the fuel and paid for the trip, unbeknownst to me, for that combi to go up to Pretoria. What is amazing was that when we went up to Pretoria, we stayed and were hosted by a couple called Jeff and Jane Kirsten, who were a young couple. They were about to start a student ministry, and we were dreaming about it at that time. And we got very involved together as the years progressed, um, pioneering this, this incredible student ministry in, in Pretoria that's become a huge uh, center. Many people down to Cape Town and blessed our church over the years. But the incredible thing was Rory Dyer was pastoring in Durban at that time. Little did we know that he would end up moving up to Pretoria, take over the church that Jeff and Jane were a part of, and would be the, the impetus that would send them to plant a church a couple years ago in Lisbon. The plot thickens, people, because hold on a little bit further. This incredible narrative just keeps taking shape. Rory Dyer, years later, the man who paid for my wedding ring, the man who paid unbeknownst to me for the fuel and the trip and the accommodation for this trip up to Pretoria, would actually be invited late years later to be the wedding officiant for Fiona and Gabe Phillips. What is more about this amazing combi ride altogether was that the phone call that I first received saying there's two spots available, would you and Richard like to join us in this combi, was from a man called Mark Van Pletsen who was on eldership at Glenridge, who you just saw on the screen right now, and little did we know, the plot thickens, that 15 years later we'll be involved in leading a church together in Cape Town. 
something powerful is going on in this combi, people. But I want to tell you that actually, I want to suggest to you that I really believe that this is not just a once-off event. This is not just a, the stars aligned type of situation. I really believe that God is always at work even in the midst of our disqualification, in the midst of our disappointments, in the midst of our defeats. God is at work. We have been conditioned to think that God is only at work when we are moving forward. But I want to tell you, maybe you don't know where you're going. Maybe you feel like you're just jumping on the bandwagon. You've been invited along and you're like, how did I get on the show? Were you trying to patch things together? I want to tell you, the Almighty God has always been at work. And I tell you, on the back of a little bit of faith stirring in our hearts, on the back of a few faith steps, on a few moments of courage when we put stakes to the ground, I believe that all of heaven leans into our story and says, the plot thickens. And we think it's just a small moment, small coincidence, small little insignificant uh, moments. But I want to tell you, I believe God is saying the plot thickens. And I believe he's doing it even here today. So I want you to tell the neighbor next to you, the person on the seat left and right, tell them, I prayed all week that I'll sit next to you. Why don't you tell them that? Even if it's a lie, just encourage them. And now why don't you just tell them one more thing. Tell them the title of my sermon, but do it with as much fervor in your voice. Tell them, the plot thickens. <laughs> Let's pray very quickly. Father, I thank you for what you're doing here in this room. I thank you that you are... You're awakening dead hearts. You are stirring hearts to faith again. You are restoring broken hearts. You're putting courage in our, the depths of our souls, Father God. You're doing something significant in our lives. But I thank you that today we lift our eyes a little bit higher and realize that you are doing something even more significant than we first imagined. That this is not just an orchestration by the hands of man. This is not just a religious service. This is not just a, a biding of time. This is not just waiting for another job or one day when or some, maybe one day something will go right. No, I thank you, Father, that all of heaven is leaning in onto this moment, to our response, to your word being preached and saying the plot thickens. Would you do that by the power of your word and the power of your spirit in Jesus' name? Amen. There's a narrative in the Bible about uh, two brothers, Esau and Jacob. And I love this narrative mainly because the man Esau is described as red and hairy. <laughs> Come on. His twin brother, though, is the, the, almost the one who takes the limelight in biblical narrative history, Jacob. And it's almost like by chance because Jacob should not have taken the center stage. Esau was the eldest of the twin brothers. He should have inherited all the father's blessing by the law of primogeniture in the Jewish community. Eldest brother, eldest son gets all the blessing. Jacob, sorry, you're the weakest link. You leave with nothing. That's the type of situation that should have befell this narrative. But as we look into this narrative, we find that Jacob, his name, he came out second behind Esau at the womb. And actually he was named Jacob, which means heel grabber meaning that he was holding onto Esau's heel, trying to pull himself up, and, and his name literally epitomizes his life. He becomes a schemer. He is a swindler. He is, he is a guy that I'm pretty sure that have left his own devices and who lived in this day and age, he would have a Netflix show called The Tinder Swindler. Jacob is your man. That's the guy. He's the conspiracy theory guy that you, you just like, you don't trust this dude. He is, he's trying to do something all the time, trying to push his way ahead, put himself in front of the queue, and he's always coming out second and trying to navigate this journey until a, a, a fateful day when, I, and for time's sake, I won't tell the whole narrative, but the, the crux of the matter is his father is dying. 
Isaac, his dad, is dying, and it comes the moment for the bestowing of blessing upon Esau, and Esau is ready to get the fullness of the blessing, but in the preparation for this, he goes out to cook a meal for his dad, and in the gap, the swindler, the schemer, the cheater, the liar, the disqualified Jacob slips in and takes advantage of his dad's um, dying eyesight, and he slips in there, and he steals the blessing. He says, no, dad, I am actually Esau. He dresses up like Esau. He puts on Esau's cologne, and he gets... The dad puts his hand on the wrong son and blesses Jacob with the fullness of the blessing. Esau comes in and says, hey, dad, I'm here. And he goes, what's, what's, what's happened? How, how did this happen? But then he says, dad, surely there's still blessing for me. He says, sorry, son, the blessing stands. The second born, the swindler, the schemer, the disqualified has got the blessing. And on face value, let me tell you, that is a bizarre biblical story. What is the moral of the story? If you lie, cheat, and steal, you get the blessing. Surely, that can't be it. Surely, that's not what we're supposed to learn from this narrative. And yet, let me tell you, as I look at it and I try and make sense of it, I really do believe over that narrative, heaven's leaning and going, the plot thickens. The plot thickens. I'm doing more than what's on the surface level. Let me tell you this incredible thing. From that moment, Esau is raging. He is raging, and he wants. He swears that he's going to kill Jacob. This is this is brother against brother. This is mano against mano. This is like this is all out waging war. I'm coming after you, Jacob. And Jacob, as his namesake, what he does, he knows how to do this. He runs. He hides. He deletes his account, his Facebook. He deletes his iPhone tracker. You can't find this guy. He disappears off the face of the earth. Jacob spends his days trying to hunt his brother down. And Jacob is on the run, fine, trying to make a way forward. He ends up himself being swindled by his uncle. And he just, he's just this, this guy that not, there's no resolution to his story. He just seems like he's in one perpetual disqualification moment after another, living up to his name. Until he comes face to face with God. And in Genesis chapter 32, the narrative is that he encounters God and he wrestles with God. And God, in this incredible moment, actually after wrestling with him, and Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. The angel of the Lord in that moment declares, I'm going to actually change your name. I'm changing your name, your very identity, the core of who you are. You're not going to be Jacob, the swindler, the schemer, the, the liar anymore. You're going to be named Israel. And Israel, different types of meanings, but the, the emphasis of it is Israel means God fights for me. Where Jacob for a long time has been, I will fight for myself. I will pull myself up at any cost, any expense. I'll make a way. I'll make a plan. I'll cut any corner to get ahead. God says, no, you won't do that anymore. I will fight for you. Trust me. What happens next is so profound, and it seems like I want to tell you that actually in this moment, I believe heaven leans in as this moment happens, and Jacob encounters, has his name changed. I feel heaven leans in and says, the plot thickens. The plot thickens, and there's anticipation, because chapter 33 is one that you'll skip over in your Bible. There's reconciliation between Jacob and Esau, but in chapter 33, I'll read it now on the screen now behind me, chapter 33, verse 18 to 19, after encountering God, after reconciling with his brother, it says this, Later, having traveled all the way from Padam Aram, Jacob arrived safely at the town of Shechem in the land of Canaan. There he set up camp outside the town. Jacob bought the plot of land where he camped from the family of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver. The plot of land. Now, I want you to put that in, in your memory bank because let's just say it together one more time. One, two, three. The plot thickens. You see, we fast forward 15 chapters, which was multiple years, as Jacob has children, one of whom is a man named Joseph. 
And Joseph is a man that gets disqualified, gets disappointed, gets dropped by his brothers. He had a dream and a promise, but he's the youngest. He's not in favor with the, with the, the way status quo of society, even though his dad loves him. But his brothers say, no, no, we're not going to let the youngest come and usurp our blessing, our authority. No, no, we're going to shove him aloft on the side. And what happens as you read the narrative, subsequent events of Joseph being thrown in the pits, being bought by slave traders, being taken away from the land that God had promised his forefathers, and going to the land of the enemy, the place called Egypt, where he would be thrown into prison, falsely accused, and have to live this, this terrible life of, of wondering, what if? And saying, has God abandoned me? And every junction, I can imagine, in the pit, in Potiphar's house, in the prison, going, God, where are you? Are you still working, God? And I can imagine God is leaning in at that moment at every juncture going, the plot thickens. Moves from Potiphar's house to the prison. And in the prison, he connects with the, 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 the Pharaoh's baker and his, wine, his, his drinker, his preparer of wine. And he meets with these two people. And God says, I am making a miracle behind the scenes that you don't even know. In the midst of your disqualification, in the midst of your disappointment, I'm still working. The plot thickens. Joseph, miraculously, Pharaoh has a dream. And there's no one that can interpret this dream except one person who they remember is in the prison that somehow has got here because of his brothers who've thrown him in a pit. People who have thought that they were canceling out Joseph's story were actually potentially setting him up for the greatest victory. Joseph gets called out of the prison. He comes, he interprets the dream. And as would happen, he gets authority, he gets favor, and Pharaoh raises up to be second in charge over all Egypt and to, to navigate the way forward, the economic plan for, for salvation for that land, for that region in the time of famine. Now, the problem was, though, the brothers who are still back in Canaan, they start to realize that actually they aren't in this process and they need to get back. They need to go to Egypt to go and get some restitution. They're going to go get food there. And they don't know. They think Jacob, uh, Joseph is dead. So they go all this journey there, and then the narrative follows this, this train of thought where Joseph is there waiting his brothers. Joseph, disguised as an Egyptian, ends up being, bringing the provision for the brothers who threw him in the pit. The plot thickens. But the plot thickens to even an extent where they have reconciliation. They have moments of reconciliation, brother to brother, and they forgive each other. This amazing moment. And then we get to Genesis chapter 48. And this is the narrative before we read it. Is Jacob now, just like his father Isaac is dying, and time of blessing is coming. And Jacob comes and says, oh, Joseph, I want to bless your sons. I thought you were dead, but now you're alive. I want to bless your sons. And Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh is the oldest, Ephraim is the youngest. So what would happen is Joseph came and said, you're going to bless my boys, but I'm going to put the eldest here, Dad, at, on your right hand. That's the right hand of authority to get the firstborn blessing. And I'm going to put the youngest, Ephraim, at your left hand, so you'll bless him second, but after you've given the full blessing to the eldest. Jacob goes, cool. Jacob stands there. The sons have put their Manasseh on his right, Ephraim his left. And just as he's about to bless, Jacob switches hands. And Joseph goes, no, 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 Dad. Shame, he's a bit senile. This is the eldest. This is the youngest. And Jacob says, I know. And Jacob blesses the wrong son. It's almost like seems like a pattern is going to form in Scripture. And actually, I believe in this moment where everyone else goes, Dad's lost it. What is going on? I believe heaven leans and says, the plot thickens. The plot thickens. And this is what happens next. In Genesis chapter 48, verse 21 to 22, it says this. Then Jacob said to Joseph, look, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will take you back to Canaan, the land of your ancestors. And beyond what I've given your brothers, I am giving you an extra plot of the land that I took from the Amorites. The plot thickens. 
Joseph gets the plot of land that his dad bought years ago when he encountered God in, in, a, in a faraway land, land called Shechem. He says, I'm going to give you that plot that I bought, that you're going to go back one day and you'll have that as your inheritance. Your children, their children have that plot as their inheritance. The plot thickens. Actually, Genesis 50, the whole book of story of Genesis ends with Joseph declaring this, what man intended for harm, God always intended for good. What man thought was for your defeat, for your disappointment, for your destruction, for your devastation, God says, the plot thickens. I'm working at a higher level. The plot thickens. I want to tell us now, as I bring this into close, there's this amazing thing. As you fast forward now, many generations, to a man named Jesus who arrives on the scene. And Jesus is doing incredible miracles. He's doing incredible teachings. There's momentum gathering for his ministry. And then comes a bit of a, a detour. A detour that just doesn't seem to fit on the map. A detour that doesn't actually fit on what God had intended, it seems, or the disciples had planned for what the Messiah would do. The detour includes meeting a lady in Samaria called the Samaritan woman. And let me tell you before we get to the scripture, the Samaritan woman, that's so huge that actually we have to understand that Jesus met with the Samaritan woman because there had been years, years of segregation between Jews and the Samaritans. There was a lot of reasons for that, but actually one reason was actually the fact that Samaritans, believe it or not, descended not from the line and tribe of the eldest born, not Judah, not Levi, not all those, but Samaritans descended from Manasseh and Ephraim, Joseph's sons that should not have been got a blessing in the first part, but actually got blessed wrongly. Samaritans got blessed, came from that line, and Jews and them, because of different moments over history, had become more and more divided, more and more divided and segregated, where Jews had nothing to do with Samaritans. This was so huge that actually, in fact, that no Jewish man would dare approach a Samaritan woman, let alone a woman who had become defined by her defeat. You see, this woman was not just any Samaritan woman. This was a debauched Samaritan woman. A woman who's come to the well in the middle of the day because she doesn't want other people to see her. She's a woman, as Jesus would have this conversation with her, would tell her that, or find out that she had had five husbands. Now she's shacked up with a sixth guy that's not her husband. She's actually given up on that whole marital thing as it is. And she's been searching for a man that will come and complete her. And Jesus, in a sense, says, here, here I am. Here I am. I've been here the whole time. I'm coming for you. And they have this incredible dialogue. But this is the incredible reality that I want us to read. Where did Jesus meet the Samaritan woman? John chapter 4, verse 4 to 5 says this. Now he had to go through Samaria. Now let me tell you, he did not have to go through Samaria. He did not have to. Geographically, not by geographical reason, but actually because was, the plot was thickening, he had to go through Samaria. And on this way there, he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Before we get to the killer punch here, I want to tell you that word Sychar means the end. Literally means the end. Jesus went to the end to meet this woman. He went beyond where everyone else would have gone, where everyone else had drawn a line and said, no, God can't be working there. He went to a place literally called the end. And this is what it says. He says, near the plot of land Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Three times in scriptures that this plot of land appears. It happens in Genesis 33 after Jacob encounters the angel and he buy, just on the fly buys a piece of land. Then in Genesis 48, in a foreign land in Egypt when there was no time for blessing, no times of famine, there's no potential of blessing in this season. Surely there's no future in this season in Egypt and famine. There's a plot that I'm giving to you, Joseph, in faith that's still there. And fast forward many centuries later, Jesus in his ministry, had, he had to go through Samaria to go to a well, a plot of land that Jacob had given to Joseph to meet a Samaritan woman so the gospel could come to her at her end. Here is my suggestion I want to ask you. 
When Jacob bought the plot of land amidst his disqualification, amidst his disappointment, amidst his defeat, did he have any clue that Jesus was doing something much more profound than he first imagined? Let me tell you, I think when he put those shekels down, whatever currency they were using in those days, definitely not Bitcoin. But whatever he put into the soil and said, this is my property, I'm telling you, I think all of heaven lent and said, the plot thickens. Here's my, my encouragement to us. I believe that actually on the back of something so natural, one baptism, one moment, one moment of making decisions, one invita inviting of a friend to church, to your home, one moment of generosity, one moment of forgiveness, one moment of surrender, one moment of confession, one moment of trust, I believe could change eternity in ways that we could never even have fathomed, never have even dreamt of. That what we're inv inviting ourselves into, what we're invited to, is not a natural transaction of one plus one equals two, that we're invited into a divine combi. And he's saying, actually, if you trust me, I will make something so glorious that you'll never be able to understand what I'm doing here. Let me tell you this reality, that we have Jacob, who's the second born, get blessed illegitimately by father. And the, the, all the legitimate blessings of the fathers is given to the illegitimate son. Then we have Joseph, who's been forgotten and pushed aside. And Jacob comes to those sons, who should never have got a blessing anyway, of this, of this strength, of this magnitude. But a father comes here, I'm going to bless Manasseh and Ephraim. And at the moment of blessing, he changes hands and blesses the wrong son. The son who should not have got the blessing, the one who should not, who does not deserve it, he gives it to him. And then we find us some Samaritan woman. Jesus has come. No, surely he's come to the Jews. Surely he's come to us to preach the gospel. But no, he comes to a Samaritan woman in a place that ever no one else wants to go. And he says, actually, no, I've also come to open the way to the Gentiles. She is the first of our kind, non-Jewish people that encounters the grace of Jesus, opens the way for the gospel to go forever because the plot was thickening. The wrong people got blessed again and again and again. And it comes to a crescendo when we see on the cross, Jesus, the only true legitimate firstborn of the Father. The only one who has never been disappointed, who's never been defeated, never been disqualified. Jesus stands there and he stands in our stead. And when he dies on the cross, the illegitimate secondborns, those who've been defeated, disqualified, despised, dropped, let down, who've messed up again and again. That's you and I, by the way. On the cross, as Jesus said, my God, my God, why do you forsake me? Can I tell you what I imagine heaven was doing? The Father was crossing his hands. And he put on his firstborn the curse of humanity. And on us, illegitimate sons, those who do not deserve it, the Jacobs, the Ephraims, the Samaritans, he gave us the full blessing of heaven. The plot thickens. I land by telling, as I called Jason up, about over five decades ago, there was a young man from Zimbabwe who arrived as a 21-year-old in Cape Town. And he came to study in Cape Town for a year. That would pretty, the, the dream was he'll get a degree, get his honors degree, would further his education, would be able to go home and make a life for his, what would, what would be the, the white picket fence, 2.5 kids, that life in Zimbabwe would make a way. That's what he's dreaming for. But in a night, one night, when he reached the very end, the sikar, the moment where he said, actually, what am I doing? I've got nothing left in reserve. In the midst of his disappointment, disqualification, defeat, this man reached out to a lady and her husband, a lady called Gabby. And he reached out to her, some a family friend, an older lady who'd been part of their lives on the periphery, he reached out to her and said, I need to come to your house. And amidst tears, he sat there and said, I don't know what else to do. And in a stumbling way, she, she and her husband explained the gospel to this young man. And he said, and he put his faith in Jesus that night here in Cape Town over 50 years ago. 
That man was my dad. And let me tell you, I believe that evening as that was happening, that moment, the hill of heaven lent and said, the plot thickens. In a place far away from homeland Zimbabwe, God would be putting together, this man would meet this lady, it's called Gabby, and years later he'll go home and he'll raise the children in the way of the Lord. They'll make decision after decision, and the plot would thicken until there's his son, Gabe, with the illegitimate son would arrive, and would come here into Cape Town with authority, and say, actually, we're going to start churches, and we're going to see the gospel moved. And let me tell you, one of my greatest moments when we started our city congregation, on that day, that lady, Gabby, was in the congregation. And I remember saying to Gabby, would you stand, because can I tell you, if it wasn't for you, None of this would have happened. None of this would have happened. Because the plot is thickening. And can I tell you, I think that God may have set all of that up. My dad, to Cape Town, to meet a lady called Gabby, to come and raise children, send them back to Cape Town. Maybe, maybe, maybe for Carmen. Maybe that's why God did that. Maybe God is saying the plot thickens. The plot thickens. God is working behind the scenes. And I say it again. God is always at work, even amidst your disqualification. He's always at work amidst your disappointments and defeats, amidst the detours and the delays. When you say, God, what are you doing? I tell you, all of heaven is just saying, the plot thickens. I want to say to you today, maybe you don't know where the combi of your life is going. Maybe you just jumped in for the ride, or maybe you've stalled out long ago. Maybe you're just feeling like, how, how can, what, what am I doing with my life? You've hit that midlife, you've, you're early, you've, your life is train wrecked, you're just going through the motions. What am I doing? I want to zoom you out. I want to zoom you out from what you see in front of you. It's not just a plot of land, it's destinies. It's not just a one decision. It's not just a prayer. It's not just generosity. It's not just giving. It's not just a little bit of money. It's not just a little bit of faith. It's not just the courage to, to pick up the cross again and follow him. No, no, no. He's saying the plot thickens. I'm doing more eternal things than you first dreamed, dreamed or imagined. I am still at work. So I want to ask you today, would you allow the plot to thicken? What an amazing word. We hope you enjoyed that sermon. If you would like to find out more about Life Changes Church, why don't you go into our website or you can follow us on our social media. Have an amazing, amazing week.